I mean, how weird it is that you turn up with, I've just brought some strawberries and some chocolate. May I borrow a small pan so I can make my chocolate-coated strawberries? Because that's the ultimate podcast food. In no way is this going to inhibit your ability to talk while you're eating these strawberries. <laughs> Jack, do you want to make a comment on that? It's a very specific food. <laughs> this is... You have to go back to work and fill it over. <laughs> Strawberry. Wow. Well, I can't deny a man that. See, because we can't actually start the episode until you've eaten three more rather <laughs> large <laughs> strawberries. They're really big. <laughs> you got even quick. At some point, I'm just watching you. Oh, mm, mm. What was it that toilet said? Yum. Mm. <laughs> I'll pay for that toilet, actually. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history, focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... This story begins in the Georgian era. That is 1800s. Yeah, early 1800s, um, 1700s mainly. I never know what time in history. Well, th- there are some dates in this, so don't worry. Okay. You will you will get placed. Uh, and your three words, Africa, family, statistics. Where are we at? Um, we're in Africa. We're not, actually. That was, that was misleading. <laughs> It's almost like I'm being deliberately obtuse. Famine? Mm. Are we doing something awful to another country? In in this, no, actually, weirdly. This is not a story about the awful things we've done to other countries. So, I've got, I've got to start by asking you a few questions. Okay. Did you begin reading at the age of two? No. Did you know Greek, Latin and long division by five? No. Were you reading Shakespeare at six for pleasure? No, just for study. No. You were clearly not Francis Galton. If I'd said yes to all of them, would I... You possibly could have been Francis Galton. When did he die, though? He's dead. Okay. Okay. Francis... Are you dead? (laughs) Yes. Okay, narrows it down. You could possibly be Francis Bacon. Galton. <laughs> Galton. Francis Galton, he was the youngest of seven children in an illustrious and successful Quaker family. The patriarch, his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, he was one of the leading figures of the Birmingham Enlightenment. Is that a thing? Apparently so. There were many preeminent Brummies in various fields. I, d- I bet <clears throat> they didn't have the accent back then. Oh, yeah, they did. It was just thicker. Yeah, it was even thicker. And at no point in this are we going to try and affect a Birmingham accent. As we know, neither of us can do accents. Yeah, and I am not trying to do the Birmingham Enlightenment down because they they were pretty enlightened. As far as enlightened groups go, the Birmingham Enlightenment, up there with the the Italian Renaissance, as far as I'm concerned. One of um, Erasmus Darwin's most famous works was Zoonomia. And it suggested that all life arose from a common ancestor, though he used the word filament. 
So all life came from a common... Filament. Filament. Okay. I, I believe he wrote this and it predated light bulbs. <clears throat> is so, it just coincidence that Darwin would... Is it coincidence that Erasmus Darwin was talking about where life came from? Is it his actual relation? Maybe. Let's let's continue. Um, an idea that one of his other grandsons, a certain Charles Darwin... Oh, Charlie Boy. Yeah, would expand on a few years later. So... Charles Darwin's theory of um, evolution, he didn't come to it as a a complete, you know, light bulb eureka moment. He was building on a body of work that, you know, his his own grandfather had quite a bit of play in and had done quite a lot of the legwork for him. But you don't remember Erasmus, despite despite him having a really cool name. There are <clears> some Erasmuses, isn't it? There aren't enough, as far as I'm concerned. You always imagine Russian, though. Do you? Erasmus. I'm just thinking Rasputin. Rasputin. Yeah. Yeah. Rasputin was definitely Russian. Um, Erasmus, though, he suggested that in order for a species of animal to continue to thrive, the strongest and most active animal should propagate the species, which should thence become improved. So the idea of the theory of natural selection, he pretty much, in other words... Already out. put it down on paper. And Erasmus, he wasn't the only polymath in the family. Francis Galton's dad, he was very scientifically minded. A lot of his uncles were, you know, it was like the family business was being Just bloody smart. Yeah. So it wasn't really that surprising that Francis Galton was such a prodigy, you know. Uh, and Francis, he was very aware of it. Yeah. Would you like a quote from young Francis? Yes. Okay. That's the, the right answer because it's happening. I am four years old. I can read any English book. I can say all the Latin substantives and adjectives and active verbs besides 52 lines of Latin poetry. I can cast any sum in addition and multiply by 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 and 10. I can also say the pence table. Don't know what that is. I read French a little and I know the clock. Pretty good. Hmm. You don't Four years old. <laughs> no, no, I, I still have trouble reading an analog clock, don't I? That's a little Joe fact. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, at four, that was. So, yeah. He hadn't got onto the Shakespeare. all like verified? Are we just taking his little lying four-year-old self? Oh, well, it, it's the kind of thing I feel would be easily checkable. You just throw a Latin book in front of him. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, but did he just do it with confidence and everyone assumed it? Oh, right. He was just fronting it out. Yeah. No one threw the book at him. <laughs> I can also jump 25 metres. Oh, bloody hell, Francis. Not only a scholar, but also an athlete of the highest order. Really, he's just a fantastic <clears throat> salesman. Well, his his blagging, if that's what it was, it got him far because he attended the prestigious King Edward School from the age of 14 to 16 but he complained that the curriculum was too focused on the classics and religion. He wasn't right. really interested. He told his family he wanted to leave, do something different. His dad agreed to this and sent him off to train as a doctor. Chippy. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sent him off to be a chippy. Was that to be a chippy or to run a chippy? chippy. Either. Yeah. Be good. Um, they sent him to be a doctor because that's what his grandfather, Erasmus, had been. And Erasmus had turned out okay. So obviously, doctor gives you good grounding in the sciences anyway. Uh, though rather than enrolling at a university, which you think is how you become a doctor, 
Francis began his medical training by just being apprenticed to a series of physicians. So they just basically went, see him, he's a doctor, follow him around for a bit and maybe maybe you'll become a doctor by osmosis. Is that not how it works now? Well, no, now it's formalised. Are you just shadowing people and yeah, but giving you tasks to You do. go to university and the university will send you out to shadow with a specific sort of learning goal in mind. It wasn't just follow him around and eventually he'll say you followed him around enough and then you're a doctor. That seems a very... It's not um, got the scientific rigour that you'd want from a doctor. Maybe. Uh, Throwing Francis straight in at the deep end, it didn't work out too well for Francis. He didn't like the screaming of unanesthetised patients because he was in the operating (laughs) theatre. So So he's actually... Yeah, his job was probably more pinning down um, people who were being cut open. And he didn't like that. Oh, the writhing and... Yeah, it's very hard to keep hold of them, especially when they're drenched with fear sweat. And if they manage to get an arm loose and punch the uh, the surgeon, the Which, surgeon gets I mean, pissed. Under, pain, under that amount of pain. Oh, yeah, you, you would. Have, you have unknown strength. <laughs> yeah. He had to really put his entire weight into it. Um, All 15 years of him. Yeah. Well, no, I, what age would he be at this point? Well, at 16. 16, bless him. He's, he's... So he's somewhere between... What seven and no no he'd be six stone he... <laughs> yeah probably right. so he wasn't he wasn't a big man uh, let's let's put it that way I assume he wasn't a very he wasn't grocking out he wasn't going to the gym regularly um, he didn't like it and after less than a year he convinced his parents that he would be able to learn a lot more about being a doctor if he went on a grand tour of Europe with some other junior doctors uh, to learn about the latest medical breakthroughs on the continent. It definitely wasn't a lad's holiday because occasionally they were going to a local hospital and going, how, how do you perform surgery? Oh, oh, good. Make a little note of that in my book. And then they, they carry on. Oh, as a group. Mm. And then they just shuffle out. Yeah, they all just walk in and go, lads on tour, medical tour. Uh, There must have been less screaming in French and Italian hospitals because Francis returned to England. He had renewed enthusiasm for doctoring. Yeah. It's like, it can be done without the screaming and the fountains of blood. I can can do this. And he decided it might also help if he actually enrolled at a university. So he enrolled at King's College London, more traditional medical education. Unfortunately, his enthusiasm quickly faded. Oh, is he now like 20-ish? Uh, this he be 18 now. So he's an 18-year-old, and his I'm going to turn my life around moment didn't last very long. Where were, where were these opportunities for us, Joe? Did did you was... have incredibly rich, incredibly well-connected parents? No. Was that the was that the thing? Yeah, yeah. I remember asking mum once, um, can I... One of my friends is like, oh, I've got an uncle, he's got a refrigerated van and he, he drives France a lot to pick up things. Mm. And he he said, we, oh, we we get in the fridge and he'd take us to France. And you said, can I get in a refrigerated yeah. van? Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming the response was no. She said yes. It was, <laughs> it was so stupid. She knew I couldn't pull it off. Brilliant. She was just like, yeah, if you, yes, 
<laughs> Why not? Oh, oh, I could have really surprised her. She'd have been so proud. <laughs> when you died in a refrigerated van <laughs> somewhere on the on the continent. Just uh, take a moment for a strawberry break. break. Okay. Do you like your nearest strawberries? Dipped in the cheapest chocolate. <laughs> Jacket of strawberries. <laughs> yeah. He returned to England with renewed enthusiasm and actually enrolled at a proper university, King's College London, for a more traditional medical education. His enthusiasm quickly faded and Francis began to realise it had been the travel he had enjoyed rather than the cutting-edge continental medical techniques he'd witnessed. He lasted less than six months at King's College, which was less time than he managed in the operating table with the screaming, mm. um, before he was off on another tour of Europe in the summer of 1840. This time, he was a bit more left field. He hit up Romania, Turkey and Greece. Is Romania close to Turkey and Greece? I don't think it's that close, but these are the three... Is, is there a, isn't there a country between... Yeah, but he just ignored that. He kept his eyes down the entire time. <laughs> Didn't make eye contact with anyone. He returned from this second trip, and having finally decided he didn't want to be a doctor, he went to see his cousin, Charles Darwin, to ask what he thought Francis should do with the rest of his life. Because Charles Darwin, he's a, a is, he, is he older? Man. Is he, is he a more slightly sensible... Older, slightly older cousin, yeah. yeah. Weathered man. So Charles, he carefully considered his younger cousin's flighty nature and his love of travel before arriving at what he felt was the perfect solution. Francis... Can I have a guess? Go on. So he loves travel. Yep. He wants the excitement of it. Oh, yeah, he wants excitement. Of novelty. Oh, yes, definitely novelty would be good. Hmm. A curtain salesman. He said Francis should study maths. The The... Laugh a minute, yeah. super hyper exciting world of mathematics is what he should do. Did his eyes light up <clears> in the well, moment of realization that he was right? I should point out, Charles didn't just say, Do Go, maths. Do maths. He said, You should read mathematics like a house on fire. So he did try and judge it up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, come on. You can be. Cut to the montage. Maths. Turning pages. Set square. Protractor. Calculator. Sine and cosine. It's a bell curve. Then he's just riding a roller coaster, which is just a graph. That would work. Yeah. But he didn't have any better ideas. So, because again, as I've said, he was rich and connected. Uh, he dutifully enrolled at Cambridge, because you can when you're rich, uh, and spent three long years suppressing all of his urges in order to study maths. He even went so far as to invent a gumption reviver machine, Ooh. which was a thing that periodically dripped water on his head to keep him awake so that he could study maths long past the point when his body would naturally have forced him to stop because it needed sleep. And if that sounds like water torture... You'd be 100% correct. And you know he didn't learn anything f during those hours. It was just wasted. Now we know that if you just take it, do two hours, mm. take a break for half an hour, do something else, mm. allow that information to settle in your brain. No. You'll actually learn a lot quicker. He, um, he spent three years literally torturing himself to try and learn maths, which he'd never shown any interest in before. 
Did he forget more than he'd learned? Well, after three years of this, you know, self-torture, he suffered a significant mental breakdown. Yeah. Though he did scrape a degree without honours. So, yay. Was that a third? I guess, yeah. Like, like scraped a third. Can you so. get a degree now where it's without honours? Yeah. That's sad, isn't it? A, a, two, a, a one one and a a two one are with honours, and a two two and a a third are without. I think. Um, so I didn't know that. So he. So what he, are the? It's with what? I don't know. It just says with honours. I think it just means that you did better than the average. Right. But he he tortured himself for three years to do maths, and he managed to barely scrape. And I'm assuming there were other people on that course who did the equivalent of, you know, crammed on the last night and just about did enough. So he got a degree in mathematics. A degree in mathematics. Luckily, though, for Francis, his recovery was made significantly easier from his mental breakdown and his shit degree by two events that occurred in 1844 that many no longer had to worry about such trifling concerns as employability. Mm. Um, Firstly, he was invited to join the Freemasons because, you know... We're going to shake hands. I don't. I'm not a member. You... I, I I know you are. I'm not, so I can't. <laughs> Lovely. What you do is you <clears throat> tickle the other one's palm. Okay. Is that all it is? Just a little tickle? With your middle finger. It's inside knowledge. So, he was obviously, you know, obviously great Freemason material. He had no discernible skills at this point. He sort of crapped out of everything he tried. Did he have a penis? He definitely did. Check. Um... But not only did he join, he progressed fast from apprentice to master mason. Mm-hmm. Three months. It took him to go from apprentice mason, who was in the midst of a mental breakdown, to master mason. Isn't it nice when people find that where they're supposed to be? Mm. Well, I'm, su- I'm sure that the process for deciding who gets to progress in the masons is very fair. <clears throat> and isn't anything to do with who you know. Imagine joining in a group, Joe. Mm. I know you're quite a solitary dude. As am yeah. I. We don't, we don't frequent parties or anything like that. Uh, no, no. Even in the normal times. But long, long ago. Yeah. But imagine going somewhere and everybody was so happy to see you. And they, they oh, have my chair. <laughs> oh, thank you. Shall I get you a plate of food? Everyone's laughing at you. How easy would it be to seduce you in a social situation to the point where you believed that that was where you were supposed to be and oh no every, I, everything was leading to that moment where you finally belong i've i've been doing my job for six years i still have serious imposter syndrome i still wait half expecting someone's gonna open the door to my office and go wait a minute this is ridiculous you can't do this you're a, you're a literal child go away <laughs> you idiot and then i just have to leave that's a c- constant thought that goes through my head. Oh, Joe. But enough about my neuroses, because... You're enough. Thank you. No, you're enough. <laughs> so, Francis, because he now was a master mason, it ensured he would always be able to rely on an introduction to the right person at the right time to further whatever interest he had. He was never going to have to scrape and, uh, you know, try. So we're, we're done with mathematics now? For the moment, so it's a foundation to something. I'm trying to figure out. So African... We've not even got to the first word yet. Have we not? Well, we've kind of hit family. He had a famous family. Was but... that the family? <clears throat> yeah. And what was the last one? Uh, statistics. statistics. So we may come back to maths. 
So we're sort of skirting around that last mm. one. Uh, the second thing, though, that happened in 1844, because it wasn't just that he joined the Freemasons. If anything, it was it was more of a boon for him. His dad died, which oh. was great for Francis because it left him enough money to ensure he wouldn't actually have to work a day in his life if he didn't want to. He was one of seven children, so it goes to show how rich and successful his was family was. Was he close were. to his dad, or is he, did he just like clap his hands together and rub him? He like, didn't clap, Ooh. but I think it was definitely a silver lining to what was otherwise a tragic event. Um, Francis, he embraced the life of a man of independent means, doing what any young eligible bachelor would do in 1845. He went on a hippo shooting expedition down the Nile. What the hell? Yeah. Is that the Africa link? Yes, the Nile's in Africa. I'm saying, is that where it's come from? Uh, well, yeah, he's been to Africa. Maybe he'll go back. He he learned Arabic on the way because that's the sort of multitasking that a polymath like him likes to do. Me and you, we just go and shoot the hippo. That's enough um, of, a, of an activity. But he was what? like, mm. "So polymath? We're we're not even monomaths. <laughs> What's less than a monomath? A, a demi-math? We can half get things. <laughs> yeah." <laughs> I, I kind of get the concept, but don't ask me anything deep. My, all of my knowledge is surface knowledge. I know not to look at the sun. <laughs> but sometimes I do, because <laughs> I forget. His trip was cut short, though, his hippo hunting trip, because he got an STD from a prostitute while trekking by camel across the Namibian desert, as you do. I mean, the red light districts of the Namibian desert are well known. God, what did he get? Um... We don't know. We don't know. How did he know he had an STD then? I'm guessing it burnt when he peed. Um, Apparently, this episode was so horrific that it permanently turned Francis off the idea of sex. And he had to return to Britain for five years to get over it. He was so just shocked. Much of the get over it montage. So he went in 1845. He spent five years back in England. Mm. In Scotland, actually. Listening to birds and walking. (laughs) Wondering if my penis will ever work again. Not drinking much water these days. (laughs) But in 1850, he felt ready to travel again. That that arduous recovery from his STD. He was was cleared by the doctors. Uh, And he decided he was ready to explore the interior of the African continent. He was going to deepest, darkest Africa. The way that only sort of Victorian explorers could. So we've got that flat-brimmed helmet. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, go with the full, you know, yeah. Nice. What's that colour? Like He's wearing sort of um, like khaki safari yeah, yeah. jacket with the shorts. And long socks. Yeah, the boots and the long socks turned down. Imagine the full thing. It's probably true. A pipe. A team of people to carry all your stuff. And luckily for him... Because that all sounds very expensive. Uh, he knew a guy, <clears throat> Freemason, at the Royal Geographical Society and was supported, financially, to plan an ambitious trip starting from Walvis Bay on southwest coast of Africa. Because what Francis wanted to do is he wanted to find an overland route to Ngami Lake in Botswana, which another famous explorer, Livingston, had discovered a few years earlier. This would, um, it was around 650 miles away, meaning he would have to make a round trip of 1,300 miles. Right. So that's quite a distance. You know, it's impressive if he pulls it off. So he's doing this, what, with with camels, horses, 
Uh, he's vehicles, doing vehicles. What we're we talking? Well, it wouldn't be vehicles. He's doing Just this. Skipping. He's doing this with some kind of pack animal. Not sure what. I don't. I don't think he'd have to cross desert to get there. So maybe horses. I just imagine him in like one of those things that they carry you in. You know, what a like, litter! Is that the carried... four people that have got a yeah, pole yeah. at each end of the pole? <laughs> and he's sort of just like fanning himself with, with the curtains. Closed. I am such a great explorer. Yeah. Well, I'll, we'll see. But amongst his equipment, sir, you just discovered the Congo. <laughs> Jolly well. <laughs> good. Good. <laughs> Does it extend much further? Yes, I have been hundreds more miles into it. Well, mm, we'll change your name to my name. Say I did it. Yes, very good, sir. I shall write mother. <laughs> I found it, mother. Um, he may not have been taking it that seriously because amongst his equipment, Francis packed a prop crown, yeah. like a fake crown. And he intended to place this on the head of the greatest African native he met on his trip. So he's just going to crown a random African person based on whatever idea he came up with in it, you know, at the time. He he was going to set the parameters for who deserved to be crowned. He's going to get beheaded, isn't he? Just to, someone will feel patronised. Well. And behead him. There's, there's a chance. But oh. Francis, he did cover over uh, 1,300 miles, but he never reached Ngami Lake because he made two attempts from his base in Walvis Bay over the course of nearly three years that he was there. But it turned out his lack of preparation meant he was constantly facing challenges he hadn't considered. So there were things like he hadn't bothered to learn about the local tribes, and he was constantly getting um, involved in border disputes and wars, and he didn't have the right equipment for the terrain because he hadn't considered that the terrain might change from a, a sort of coastal bay. though, from his... Oh, they just gave him money. Oh, right. It was financial support. He was supposed to, you know, plan the damn thing, and he didn't do a particularly good job. You have no team with him? Hmm? He's just there with... No, he's there, and he's got Sherpas, the equivalent of Sherpas. He's got people to do his work for him, but ultimately he was supposed to be the guy who came up with the plan. And his plan was, well, it's vaguely northeasterly. We'll walk vaguely northeasterly, and eventually we'll reach it. And he hadn't really thought... Maybe we'll cover desert. Maybe we'll encounter swamps. Maybe we'll encounter mountains. Yeah. And when he did, he was constantly surprised by these things. And maybe native people live here. We may have to negotiate and, you know, uh, consider their wishes about where we can and can't go. None of that was considered. But, again, he's a polymath, and his polymath tendencies didn't let him down. He was able to develop survival skills on the fly. Skills such as things you may have wanted to learn beforehand. Finding water, catching food, fixing equipment, using the sextant for navigation. You think you want to be able to use navigating equipment before, but he also developed a way to use the sextant to measure the breast size of indigenous women from a distance. So, there you go. So you just figure out the triangle. Yeah, he was he was using it to basically. Hmm. Nice. I can quantify how large your breasts are from a distance of half a mile. Are we supposed to like this man? Mm, no. You're meant to form your own opinion. I'm not telling you what to do. Uh, he also learnt on the fly how to fend off lions and other wild animals, which must have been exciting. He didn't learn this stuff. He, he, he did something. It worked. Out. No, he did something. It he worked. He got lucky. Eventually, though, Francis was introduced to King... Oh, no. 
Gandalf? No, it's easy. King Nangoro. Oh, good. A chief who is apparently also known as the fattest man in the world. <laughs> and he's, this was this oh, was so hurt, his man. own people. They're like, this is our king. He is also the fattest man in the world. He's like, it's true. <laughs> and he was like, yes, I am. Um, did you tell him about the fat thing? Because <laughs> we did it, sir. Thank you. Did he look suitably impressed? Well, he was suitably impressed because Francis, either he was so impressed or he decided, I'm never going to get to this lake and I'm really, really bored with being in Africa because he decided that King Nangoro, he deserved the crown. Yeah. And he placed it on his head. Well, he's he's he's, he's hunted hippos and he's seen how fat animals can get. Yeah. So this man must be pretty well made. Well, if he's like... <laughs> Even even compared to a hippo, you are a large unit, sir. That's probably what he told him. <laughs> well, whatever he told him... If only he had a crown big enough. The king was very pleased with what he'd been told because he decided that in return he would give Francis his niece. Um, just for the night, though. Right. Naked and smothered in butter and red ochre. Yeah. Yeah, as you do. But Francis, he was wearing a linen suit. Cause he's it's like antibacterial, that. It might be. I remember when Bruce Parry, why they, why they do it. It's it's sort of like a, a sun protection. Okay, that makes sense. But it's antibacterial. And it's like a moisturiser as well. Okay, well, whether, whether it was for cosmetic reasons or whether it was for sexual titillation, Francis was wearing a linen suit. A light coloured linen suit. And the mess she caused while trying to seduce him was the final straw. He gave up immediately on the expedition. Oh, because he's covered in butter. In red ochre coloured butter, yeah. You can't get that out of a linen suit. And he returned to England, potentially to he, find a servant who could He got all somehow... the way there, and the suit is still white. Yeah. So I'm getting... He was carried, wasn't he? <laughs> he might have been carried. But he got there and he was presented with this young lady who had probably been given the, you must, you know, you must show how pleased just, we are I've that got I've this been idea him. Just sat in his box. Right, we're here. And just pulling back a curtain and going, how clean is it? <laughs> it's, it's quite dusty, sir. Okay. Uh, uh, Carry on. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was the, it was it. He he had to go home. My linens. <laughs> that was that was the final story. Like, this place is full of wild animals, and no one no one speaks to me in English. And I just ah, oh, they don't even speak Arabic. I spent all that time learning Arabic. <laughs> what the what the hell? He's hateable, this man, isn't he? Uh, we'll see. It gets better. And despite failing in his one stated aim to reach this lake, Galton was received as a hero. Because of course he was, uh, and was awarded a gold medal by the Royal Geographical Society. So you can only imagine where they would have gone to if he'd actually succeeded in his task. We award you the platinum <laughs> medal. Like, we, had, we had a pool that you were going to die. <laughs> well done. You've made me very rich. He wrote a book about his adventures and another book on survival skills, which is still in print to this day. And you can learn Victorian-era survival skills from Francis Galton, if you want. I will buy you a copy, should you wish it. Yes. Okay. That's great. That's going to happen. No, it's um, not. Yes, it will. Um, but despite this recognition that, you know, he was good at this exploring thing, his wanderlust had been sated. 
it was one buttery naked person that was that was it he'd seen everything there was to see in the world and he never left europe again oh, no had enough i mean every time he he goes out in the world and then has sex with a native of yes. that country it all goes wrong for him <laughs> yeah either std or he has scars either on, on his body or on his clothes on his fine clothes so he's yeah he's decided the same he's like the, the outside world is scary and consists of sex, which I'm not into. So yeah. he married a sensible woman called Louisa Jane Butler and settled in for the quiet life of a gentleman in London. Yeah. We're not going to hear any more from him. Because it, it might have been the end of a moderately interesting story if Francis hadn't picked up a copy of his cousin Charles's new book on the origin of species in 1859. At the time, Francis had been trying to scientifically prove how to make the perfect cup of tea. Uh, but he was inspired by his cousin's ideas to put that that to one side. Yeah, that was a task that he would have to complete later, um, because he was he was full of new thoughts firing in his brain, especially on the section on selective breeding in the context of domesticated animals. Right, that really interested him. The selective breeding. He's he's going to try and make a superhuman. Well, Galton wanted to investigate further, but first... Ooh, okay. First, as happens to all Englishmen at some point in their lives, it'll happen to me, it'll happen to you, he became slightly obsessed with the weather. And because he knew a guy, <clears throat> Freemasons... I do like the weather. Well, he knew a guy at the Met Office. He worked to develop a book on meteorology and set up a system to quickly receive res- reports from weather stations all across Europe. This not only allowed him to develop the first proto-weather maps but also did to discover the concept of the high-pressure system. He published Meteographica in 1863 and was made General Secretary of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, which is, you know, he went from trying to prove how to make the perfect cup of tea to reinventing um, weather predictions. Just because... He, he has the intelligence. He has the intelligence. If, if you put him in the Met Office, that's what he'll do, you know. It's just the kind of guy he is. So, having started the country on the course that would eventually lead to Michael Fish, uh, Francis turned his focus to the idea of inherited traits, wondering if attributes such as intellect and beauty were also as a result of natural selection. And coming from the family he did, Francis started with the hypothesis that intelligent parents would naturally produce intelligent children, because his parents were intelligent, his grandfather was a polymath, and he's a polymath. Yeah. So it must be to do with his breeding. To test this, Francis looked at family trees of some of the most eminent scientific men in England. Uh, and he found that the number of eminent relatives who'd gone on to have similar success, um, it dropped off from the first to the second degree relatives. So the son was more likely than the nephew. Um, and it dropped off again to third degree relatives. So the cousin was more likely to be smart than the second cousin. Right. So it, there seemed to be a direct correlation. Although he accepted that there were limitations to his, his study, Francis took this as evidence that nature and not nurture was the most important factor in intellect. So it didn't matter what schooling you got. You either, you could take it in and you would be really, really smart. <laughs> or that, we've got to isolate that. It'd go away. <laughs> got to dig it'd, it it'd bounce off you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All that intellect is just bouncing off your head. Um, How come you got... In- 
intelligence and I just got the good looks. <laughs> I think because he was wrong. Um, however, this belief, which he presented in his book, Hereditary Genius, in 1869, led Francis to suggest the development of a meritocratic society because he argued... This is old, Francis, now. The best form of civilization in respect to the improvement of the race would be one in which society was not costly, where incomes were chiefly derived from professional sources and not much through inheritance, where every lad had a chance of showing his abilities and, if highly gifted, was enabled to achieve a first-class education and entrance into professional life by the liberal help of the exhibitions and scholarships which he had gained in his early youth, where marriage was held in as high as honour as in ancient Jewish times, where the pride of race was encouraged. Of course, I do not refer to the nonsensical sentiment of the present day that goes under that name. Where the weak could find a welcome and a refuge in celibate monasteries or sisterhoods. And lastly, where the better sort of emigrants and refugees from other lands were invited and welcomed and their descendants naturalised. So he's arguing for a, a meritocratic society there. Right. Sounds quite idyllic, doesn't it? In a way. I was just saying, it's quite c close to the country we're in. Really? The idea that everyone's got an equal start at life and it's purely based on merit? Eaten? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but then he started experimenting on twins, which is never a good sign for a scientist. Uh, Francis got... No, there was points in that where I was like, okay, that's sort of... Some of it's good, but it's then, quite... he's, then he started experimenting on twins. Right. Francis Galton coined the term eugenics in 1883 in his book Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development. In this book, he suggested offering incentives for people of good genetic stock to breed early and often and suggested that discouraging inferior peoples from breeding would be from the greater good of humanity as a whole. It's going to be ubermensch. Well, yeah. This assertion was in spite of the fact that his own investigations into growing peas suggested that living things naturally regress towards the mean of any given trait within the species. So uh, breeding two pea plants that gave abnormally large peas and thinking, well, then I'm going to get a plant that grows even larger peas. Yeah. That doesn't happen. They just average out to the... Yeah, they the end up uh, averaging out to the, to the average. Right. You know, you do regress to the mean. So even though he'd seen that in other living things he thought somehow human traits were different so how because do you get we're special outlying you always how get you, how do you get that big old pea you always get outliers you will get genetic quirks but generally speaking oh and then you harness that yeah the outlier. Well, that's what you have to do if to you bring want the to, average up yeah to try and reconcile these two conflicting ideas that um you know he believes that human traits need to be bred in but he's seen that in horticulture at least it's very difficult to do that and there's a tendency for biology to want to regress back to the mean uh, he set up a lab measuring human characteristics trying to get the largest sample size he could he published um his results in 1889 in a book called natural inheritance having taken thousands of people through this mobile lab he'd set up so he's going around the country asking people to come in he was taking a load of measurements um but in order to process such large amounts of data, he needed to develop a number of new statistical tools and theories, including, but not limited to, the lexical hypothesis, which is the idea that if there's a word for it, it must be common. Right. So if, if, you've, if you've bothered as a society to create a word for something, it must have happened quite a bit. So if there's a word for it, 
you can take it as read it's a common trait he also came up with the idea of the questionnaire and the survey standard deviation normal distribution correlation and he also developed a few proto psychology tests as well just so that he could get the data he wanted to try and prove his eugenics theory he also took the time to develop a beauty map of britain but this was based on a secret grading system he developed for the women he saw in the lab right who uh, won he, well i don't know who won but i can who tell lost? you he concluded that can the, I guess? the ugliest place in britain is hull no no, let me, let me have a good guess. And he'd been all the way around? All the way around Britain, yeah. So you got three countries there, because I don't think he went across to Northern Ireland. Glasgow. You're in the right country, but it was Aberdeen in 1889. Apparently, the ugliest people in the country lived in Aberdeen. I think I heard this on Radio 4 the other day. Well, of slightly more use, Francis developed the scientific basis for fingerprint identification that is still used to this day. Though the idea was first proposed by Sir William James Herschel over 20 years before him, Francis declined to share the credit. So he built on an idea someone else had had and formalised it and then went, yep, all me. A bit like Charles Darwin had done, ignoring Erasmus, all those. No, well, Darwin, theory of natural um, selection Mm. was somebody else's idea. No, it it, it was another family member was also going to publish something at the same time as Darwin, and that's what forced Darwin to publish. So he, it he, wasn't his family though. It was. Um... I thought it was. It was his grandfather had come up with the idea, and then two members of the family, I believe it was another sort of second cousin, had come up with the idea of natural selection at the same time, and he'd sent the notes to Darwin to say, "I'm thinking of publishing this. What do you, are your thoughts?" And Darwin looked at it and went, "This is that same Thing idea I've that been... I've been umming and ahhing about. Something Can I publish this?" Yeah, because Darwin was having a real crisis of confidence about publishing it because it seemed to go against the idea of God. So he was trying to reconcile his religion with his evidence. And then when he saw that someone else was going to publish, he's like, oh, is he I have to get him first. No, Darwin was Quaker. Probably. Oh, he's Quaker. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, the whole family's Quaker. The whole family's Quaker. Yeah, he d- he also developed the fingerprint identification system. That's pretty cool. It's just, yeah. As it was the cutting edge of statistical science, Francis did misunderstand some of his results and he hypothesised that in order for a species to progress, there needed to be giant leaps forward in order to break the tether of regression back to the mean. So like you said, you really need to be have an outlier quite extreme to move the general sort of across. You, you can move what it's going to regress back to by constantly going to the, going to the extremes, um, which isn't true because you obviously you evolve to meet the environment. You may be able to create a freak you know, outlier, but that person's not going to do well in an environment that's not designed for them. Right. That's designed for a hypothetical that you've come up with, so they will eventually regress back. Um, As he became older, deafer and asthmatic, although he did treat his asthma by smoking weed. That was his choice of... Isn't that supposed to be good for it? Well, he decided it was, and he would smoke weed in order to... So you've got to imagine he's an old... Deaf as a post stoner at this point. The idea of eugenics was taken and expanded to become a pseudo-scientific justification for the persecution of Jewish. just any, any group you, you didn't like at the time. Right. Uh, Francis Galton was knighted in 1909. Who was, was the German doctor that uh, took this to the extreme? Experimented on twins. What was his name? Mengele. Mengele. Mm. He, died, oh he died a free man in Argentina while swimming oh. which doesn't seem fair uh, Francis how though, did it, how did he die swimming 
it's just he he was free. He was living in Argentina, a free man, and he just so happened to be taking a dip. I think in his eighties in the sea, and heart gave out. So he he died a free man doing something. I'm guessing he loved to do, which doesn't seem fair. Well, he's just learning to swim. <laughs> yeah, or he was learning. He's like, right, come need on to now. learn a new skill. No, 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 I should have taken lessons. Oh God! You can do this, Mangala. You can do anything. Yeah, Dips you're Aryan. Oh God! Francis Galton himself, paddle, paddle, though, paddle, paddle. he was knighted in 1909 for his services to science. That's a lot. Of, say that again. He was knighted, knighted in, in 1909, 1909 for his services to science, but he only enjoyed the honour for just over a year before he died in 1911 at the age of 88. Today, most people know him only as the father of eugenics and all of the horrors that would be justified by it across the course of the 20th century. However, he was much more nuanced than that. A sensitive and flighty polymath who almost certainly had no idea that his ideas might be used to justify genocide and mass murder. Even if the way he chose to express his ideas regarding selective breeding left quite a bit open to interpretation. Uh, His famous quote being, What nature does blindly... Slowly and ruthlessly. Man may do quickly and kindly. He's not saying maybe you should murder people, but he's saying, well, we could do things a lot quicker. Yeah. And I think there were a few people around the world, actually, because eugenics, it grew in England, it grew in America, the idea. It wasn't just a, a Nazi thing. It was, it was like in vogue for quite a while. Oh, so before that, people just thought, well, they couldn't have. Well, the problem was... Um, they must have known that the traits from their parents are being passed down. Well, yeah, but... She, uh, oh, I look, I look like my mother. But the, the idea of but, you would select partners based on... I mean, partners in the upper echelons at that point were picked based on um, political ideals or, you know, making a good match so that you could progress in society. The idea that... Actually, if you take an intelligent person, an intelligent person, you will have another more intelligent child, which isn't necessarily true. But the appeal of eugenics for the upper classes was it kind of it validated the idea that we are supposed to be the ruling class because look at us. We all breed together. Yeah. Yeah. You know, incestuously, but we all breed together and we produce more rulers, and more aristocrats. And that's the reason that we should maintain it. So it, it appealed to the people in power as a concept because it kind of justified their rules and their sort of elitism. But it was quite benign the way he described it because it was people who shouldn't breed should just be allowed to live out their lives, you know, rather than people who we feel are not suitable breeding stock should just be killed off so that we can you know keep hold of the resources that it would cost to keep them going that was a later addition but it's often you know he just just put into it yeah he's he's he he was a polymath but he also appeared to have been a bit of an idiot in that he just followed what he was doing and whatever he was interested in you know you don't design a self-torture machine and use it unless you have a real issue with um sort of understanding consequence right you know potential consequences of what you're doing you don't just announce you're going to march into deepest dark, darkest africa where no european has ever been successfully before i've forgotten that's what he did unless you're really naive and it seems like that's what he was he was someone who was really smart but really oh. naive would you like to have that trait what to be 
I imagine it's so in, you're so engaged in everything you do, mm. even though like you don't. Well, he, he does because he's so intelligent. Does see things through. Oh, there were there were so many things. Would that you he like didn't. that that sort of mindset that's at the whim of itself? I imagine. I mean, I'm not surprised he had a mental breakdown, and he apparently his nerves were very frail throughout his life. He would often have mini breakdowns because he, he was almost you know led by his mind. He couldn't control what he was interested in, but he would be sort of beholden to these obsessions. And when he was obsessed, he would be completely dialed in, and he would do. It allowed him to make breakthroughs because he was the only person who was willing to sit and do the work. He was the only person who, you know, he had intelligence in so many places. Maths wasn't one of them, yet his major contributions were all under statistics and sort of weather patterns and advanced maths. Sheerly force of will that he had to learn how to do these things in order to scratch that itch of his current obsession, which is, it sounds just tiring and it sounds really depressing, like you, you can't control it. I kind of live that life, but without the <laughs> without... opportunity, talent or intelligence. Oh, it's quite, it's quite sad. Is it? I, I have none of the good bits and all of the bad bits. I'm like a polymath, only without the intelligence. Yeah, and then I, I flit from thing to thing yeah, and, yeah. and just do what I do. Well, no, so that's that's Francis Galton. Uh, uh, Georgian slash Victorian polymath who did some good things he never did he never did finish his work on the the perfect cup of tea which I feel is a massive error on his part because that would be something to be famous for it's too subjective though isn't it the the Englishman who, who came up with the scientifically proven best cup of tea he'd at least get a column in the Daily Mail from that it could be a, like a, a crossword answer doing the podcast I feel it's fine in my everyday life what you feel like you have to but, stay on task here yeah, tra- it takes a lot of mental energy just to listen to you <laughs> <laughs> and there's the strap line for this episode <laughs> I think we blew it out at the end. <laughs> I'm not surprised <coughs> you started me having a coughing fit right 